This is Craig Lois, uh, sitting to my right, Declan Corley. Uh, if you're here today, you're here for our Medicare Secondary Payer webinar. Uh, the point of our webinar today is to help you answer questions from your clients, your locations, your insureds about common Medicare questions. And the most common questions that we see are questions about whether or not we can settle a case if we have to consider Medicare's interest. Declan Gorley and I have been working together for a few years now. Before working with me, Declan was a Social Security disability attorney, largely representing plaintiffs, correct? Correct. For about two years before Social Security law judges, I would represent claimants. And now we both represent employers and insurance carriers before the New York Workers' Compensation Board. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. If you can see me waving my hands, that means I'm talking. Uh, the other audio option besides listening through your computer is to dial into the number which was in your handout. If you're here today, it's because you're here for part of our New York Workers' Compensation series. Uh, this is our webinar series. We also offer training on our website, which is all the articles, many of which have been written by Declan over the years on Medicare and other topics. Uh, we give these monthly webinars. We also have a newsletter. And please remember that we also have a handbook. Our 2016 handbook is now available. This webinar series is always the third Monday of the month. Uh, third Monday of the month is the New York webinar. Fourth Monday of the month is the New Jersey webinar. Uh, these webinars roughly follow the chapter outline in our uh, workers' compensation handbook. Uh, we're coming up towards the end of our actual cycle. Our cycle ends in March, and we're up to Chapter 20 in the book, which is the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. We save some of the best for last. <laughs> this is a live webinar. Um, you can ask us questions during the webinar, and we can see them pop up on our screen, and we can answer them at the end. We're going to hold all the questions for the end, but please use this opportunity to ask us questions. We are live. We are sitting here in the office. I know it's Martin Luther King Day, uh, and unfortunately, the third Monday did fall on this holiday, so there's not a lot of people participating. Looks like we only have about 20 participants today, uh, but please ask us questions because we can answer them uh, as we go along. All right, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Declan, the expert. <laughs> so typically what happens, uh, whether it's six months, a year, two years, your client eventually says to you, hey, I want to settle this case. How do we go about doing that? And it's not just a matter of con considering what the future indemnity benefits will be, but we have to take a look at what Medicare's interest will be or if there is a need to consider Medicare's interests. So this is a brief overview of what uh, our conversation will be about today. Um, first, we're going to look at the basic difference between a lien and allocation and what it means to have when Medicare asserts a lien and when you need to actually allocate funds. Then we're going to take a look at why we care about Medicare's interests, what the law requires, what the potential penalties are, and what your exposure is if you don't take Medicare's interest into account and you were supposed to have. And what the red flags are. So what you should be looking for to determine when a claimant could potentially be entitled to Medicare or when you need to consider it, especially when there's a reasonable expectation for Medicare's interests uh, and the settlement is over $250,000. And then finally, what Medicare's response is, so what their lien reimbursement is and what the allocation thresholds are. So in Medicare's case, they won't re even review your proposed set-aside unless you've uh, met their certain thresholds. So I'll let Greg uh, discuss what lien versus allocation is. Sure. So the first topic is let's, we're going to do a little lingo, a little vocabulary, because even uh, this aspect of it is a little bit confusing, and sometimes I hear people using the wrong terms. They'll say things like, Greg, uh, Medicare has a, a lien. I got to put a set aside for it. No, 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 no. Or they'll say, uh, Greg, did we get the allocation letter back from Medicare? What are they looking to get back right now? 
And those are sort of a misuse of terms. And we kind of want to talk about uh, what is the differences between a lien and what uh, the differences between a allocation. And that typically we're talking about the distance, difference between what we presently have to pay back and what we have to pay back in the future or a future allocation for potential exposure. When Medicare was passed in 1965, uh, it was pretty strict. It was pretty difficult to uh, be eligible for Medicare. Um, remember, at that time, the life expectancy of the average uh, working person in, in America was about 68 years old. So they didn't anticipate that this was going to be a program that went on forever. The same thing with Social Security Disability. When that was passed in 1935, the life expectancy was 67 or 68. So they really only envisioned a few years of benefits. Now our life expectancy is 78, 79, 80 years. Uh, and that's a long tail of, of benefits that these people are, are receiving or recipients are, are receiving. So in order to get Medicare, the original rules were that you had to pay into the Medicare system for at least 10 years. Uh, you had to be 65 years old, be a permanent citizen of the U USA, and then have a uh, fatal or debilitating disease, and that was um, characterized as either end-stage renal disease or having already been Social Security disabled for at least 24 months. The reason we, I'm saying this stuff out loud or talking about these original um, uh, grounds to be eligible for Medicare is that they were really quite strict and they were intended to be quite limited uh, in scope and really... And the intention behind the act was that when you uh, did develop a life-threatening, debilitating disease like cancer, end-stage renal disease, that there was a medical uh, care system that would come into play and you could have someone uh, pay for your benefits. Now we know that Social Security is finding people disabled, SSDI, disability, for things like low back sprains or for um, uh, the most prevalent is back pain and um, psychological disorders like depression. Those are the two most common diagnoses. So, you know, now it's expanded, and they very quickly realized that Medicare was going to run out of money. So in 1980, they passed the Medicare as a Secondary Payer Act. This is encapsulated in the statute uh, 42, United States Code 1395Y. And there's a lot in this code, and this is a very long with many, many, many subsections. We're zeroing in just on subsection B, subsection 2, which essentially says that, hey, Medicare, we're not the primary payer. Uh, benefits should be coordinated, and if there's any other person, any other entity that should be paying for the health care uh, of this uh, person, it should not be Medicare. And they specifically say that workers' compensation is primary to Medicare. Specifically say that in the coordination of benefits, Medicare should pay second and workers' comp should pay first. Now, even though this was made into the law in 1985, aha, uh, 1980, excuse me, aha, nobody did anything about it. Um, in fact, Declan and I were talking about the fact that when I first started practicing 15, 16 years ago, we would put through uh, lump sum dismissal settlements in which there was no possibility of reopener and in which the right to further medical treatment was foreclosed. And the claimant would sit there on the stand and actually say things like, well, I know I'm getting this money today, but who's going to pay for my future medical treatment? And our answer was, and sometimes the judges would actually say this, uh, just charge it to Medicare. Because really, there was no compliance. There was no oversight. Uh, people were not complying with the statute. And that's truly what happened. Claimants would obtain their workers' compensation settlement. They would get paid money for future benefits, which could include medical benefits. And instead of using that money towards their future medical care, well, they would just take out their Medicare card and continue to use it. So for 21 years, it was essentially no compliance. Um, then uh, Medicare comes out with this memo, and they say, hey, wait a second, there's this law in the books, and we're going to start enforcing it. This is where it got kind of confused, because in the beginning, it was not even certain, hey, who are they going to enforce it against? When are we going to have to get concerned about this? 
Uh, how are we going to know how much we're supposed to set aside or pay back to Medicare? A lot of confusion. And this is also around the time when all these vendors started emerging and, you know, frankly, just sort of muddying the waters about what needed to be done because there really wasn't a great roadmap for what we're supposed to do. But now it's quite simple. And we've been dealing with this a long enough time to realize that there's basically two tracks. Any workers' compensation case in which the judge actually makes a decision, in which the case goes all the way to judgment, and maybe the judge rules in one body part and says, you know, the elbow is part of the case, but the back is not part of the case, you don't have to worry about Medicare anymore. If the person 20 years from now, 10 years from now, five years from now presents their Medicare card and gets medical treatment for the back, you've got really no exposure. You, you did everything you were supposed to do. You've got a law judge saying you weren't responsible for the back. The challenge comes uh, where, A, either medical um, treatment is foreclosed and the person then presents their medical care card and uh, goes to get care for that, and you've settled the case. So there is no judgment. And that's typically in New York. We see that in the context of a Section 32. We've got a lump sum settlement. It's going to resolve maybe indemnity, but maybe medical. If medical is being resolved and it's the subject of that lump sum settlement, uh, we may have somehow compromise Medicare's future right to reimbursement. And there's a problem there. So there's two ways we deal with this. And this is where we're going to get back to that language, what's a lien versus an allocation. We've section 32 to case. Our adversary has agreed. Greg, give me $5,000. I'm going to agree to take that as complete waiver of the claim, and you'll get a dismissal. That will resolve both medical and future indemnity. Great, let's do it, $5,000. But it turns out the person's on Medicare. It's a problem. First, we got to find out if Medicare has a lien. Have they already received medical treatment to that body part which they charged to Medicare? If so, we need to get a statement from Medicare saying, hey, Greg, here's the lien. you got to pay me back. And we see this all the time, and it's relatively straightforward. Medicare will now provide us with these spreadsheets. There's an image of one that's sort of poorly scanned on your screen, uh, which shows what these spreadsheets sort of look like. And they're broken down by CPT code or ICD code, and they tell us uh, what the cost was. And it's easy to tally up and say, this is what Medicare is looking for. Are they always correct? Not always, but we use them to resolve what's already been paid. So that when we talk about a lien, we talk about Medicare's immediate interest. It's what they've already paid out. The second part of this is future medicals. We're settling our case. We're doing a Section 32 lump sum dismissal. And now the question is, how much uh, should we set aside to consider the fact that this person might present their card in the future and try to charge medical care related to this case they just did a Section 32 to, to Medicare? Absolutely inappropriate. They shouldn't be doing it. We should be trying to prevent it. So what we do is we carve a little money out of the settlement. We hold it off to the side. We call it a Medicare set-aside allocation. I've heard them called secondary payer allocations. Um, but we're just basically carving a little money out. The the joke of this is that do the people actually use this for medical care? We don't think so because they're self-administered set-aside accounts. In other words, we tell the claimant, hey, that extra $5,000 we're paying you or that $5,000 we're allocating out of your settlement, you really should only use that for uh, medical treatment. Do they do that? No, because it's a self-administered account. They have the checkbook. They have the debit card that links to that account. They could really spend it on anything. My opinion is they probably spend it on lottery tickets or Powerball tickets now and fishing trips. Uh, you know, but hey, uh, that's how the, the system works. So it's self-affecting. So that's the lingo. That's the vocabulary. I'm going to turn it back over to Declan uh, so we can talk about why we care about all this stuff. Uh, so first, we're going to take a look at why we actually why do we care what Medicare's future interests are? What are the possible penalties if we don't take Medicare's interest into account? And what is our exposure if we don't take their interest into account? 
So first is the potential for if you don't take Medicare's interest into account or they don't believe that you did, they can come after you for double damages. And what are the damages? The potential medical uh, treatment they've paid for. So if you settle a case for a million dollars, they're not going to necessarily come after you for $2 million. But the issue is if, they, if you spent $10,000 in medical benefits, there's the potential that they're going to get $20,000. So that's the potential damages in the case, the $20,000 or double what you've paid in medical. And how Medicare will respond is they will send the claimant um, a termination notice saying basically we're no longer paying for your medical treatment. And they will also more than likely send them a uh, notice saying that until you've met certain amount, until our um, claim has been satisfied or until we've paid off all the amount of money, we're no longer going to pay for any future medical treatment in your case. Right, which is going to fire up that claimant. I mean, they're going to get that letter saying future care, we're, we're not paying, uh, paying care until you reach a certain threshold we're imagining they're running right back to their attorneys and saying, whoa, what happened here? Right, because presumably that money that they've been set aside is already gone. Right, Powerball tickets, <laughs> fishing trips. Yep. So what are the red flags when someone, we need to take Medicare's interest into account? Well, first, if the person's already entitled to Medicare, and that's pretty basic. They have a Medicare card, they're going to their doctor and showing that Medicare card and getting treatment. Uh, the second time is when um, over $250,000 settlement and there's a reasonable expectation that they're going to be entitled to Medicare in the future. The already entitled is pretty simple. I mean, you just ask them, do you have a Medicare card? And plus, most carriers can do a matching with uh, Medicare, and they will immediately report to us if somebody's on Medicare. So what is a reasonable expectation of uh, future entitlement to Medicare? First of all, there's if the person's already applied for uh, Social Security disability and they've been denied, and they may potentially appeal that decision. Um, second, there's if they've already applied for Social Security disability and they haven't gotten a decision yet from the Social Security Administration. And thirdly is if they've um, applied, they've been denied, and now they're waiting, they're waiting for a law judge to hear their case. Um, of course, since Medicare kicks in at 65 years old, if at 62 and a half, you have a reasonable expectation of being eligible if you're 62 and a half years old. And finally is if you have end-stage renal disease, which, uh, as we discussed about previously, it's very rare case, but it's something you have to take into consideration. And what is Medicare's response once you actually um, tell them we're, we're looking to settle our case? First, they'll tell you what your potential lien reimbursement is or what money they've paid out that they want you to uh, refund to them and before they'll even consider the fact that allowing you to sell your case. And Medicare will also, uh, they won't review the case if they're not, the person's not Medicare entitled, and they also won't review the, the, the case if the settlement isn't for more than $25,000. So... If you come to me and you say, Declan, I have a $15,000 settlement, we want you to put this through, we won't even have to take Medicare's interest into account, or sorry, I should say, we, should, we don't have to submit the, um, the potential allocation to Medicare because they won't even consider it. Right. They won't, they'll never give us a waiver or an approval of that settlement because they just don't even want to look at the ones that are small under 25000 And this, our allocation gets submitted to CMS, and they basically will send us a, a letter back saying, we approve of your allocation that you're so if we say we'd like to set aside 25000 they'll either send back an approval saying we authorize you to go through it, or they may even amend it and say we don't believe $25,000 is enough. We think you need to pay $45,000, and then you have to set that aside. Yeah, and I've seen them come out all over the place. Sometimes they simply approve what we've already suggested, and sometimes they're coming back with their own numbers. Um, another thing, and we don't want to gloss over this, is that the compliance of this with this act, it's mandatory, but – 
they're just expecting compliance in terms of auditing. They're really checking to make sure that the carriers are matching under the MMSEA, uh, and there's stiff fines and penalties for that. Um, <clears throat> but so much of this is being done voluntarily and not being submitted to Medicare for approval. It really is a minefield, and that's why our suggestion is to really rely on your counsel and to rely on your adjusters because we're keyed into these things. We're seeing them all the time, and those red flags that are blaring in our face, we know when it's time to get uh, to consider Medicare's interest. All right, so uh, let's move on to questions. Well, be- before you get to questions, just one thing I want to point out about the handout that you, we everyone hopefully got. Yes, yeah. There's one minor error on the handout, so I'd like to point out. Um, if you are inquiring as to someone who's actually entitled to Medicare, um, simply because they have a recent pay stub within the last six months saying that they've been paid or they're working doesn't necessarily mean that they're not on Social Security disability or receiving Medicare benefits. It is possible to uh, work for a set amount of time, earning a certain amount of money, uh, which we won't get into, but it is possible that someone could potentially be working and uh, still be entitled to Medicare benefits. Yeah, which raises that issue of who is entitled and who isn't. Right. And, you know, it's ridiculous. We'll, we'll contact our adversaries and we'll say, hey, is your claimant on Medicare? And they'll say no, or they'll say, I asked him, he said he isn't. Meanwhile, the person is actually entitled. They have a Medicare card. Maybe they lost it. Maybe they don't use it. Maybe they've got some other insurances that they're, they're utilizing. Maybe they don't go to the doctor a lot. Or maybe they are truly running it all through workers' comp. So these are the sort, sorts of situations where we say we're always going to check on that. And, you know, maybe uh, having a recent pay stub, it's a good indicator. You might not be on Medicare, right. but absolutely can't rely on it. So we apologize for that, Arata. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask us, now is the time. We're going to uh, go to the questions in a second. Um, our contact information is up on the screen, so please feel free to reach out to either Declan or myself with any questions you have about this topic. All right, let's go to the questions, and let's see if we have any questions. Okay. Sharon says, Greg, how do we get your 2016 book? Easy. Just send me an email. I'll send them out to you. No worries. Okay. Lee. Prescriptions typically inflate an MSA. I've had a few claims where the claimant weans and stops most, if not all, of the prescriptions because they want to settle to include the medical. What proof is required to submit to CMS to prove no further prescriptions are necessary? So, you want to take this one? Because we see this all the time. All of a sudden, a claimant who's been on uh, all sorts of prescription medications for pain, uh, when they realize it's going to interfere with their ability to obtain a Section 32 in their case, guess what? They're very willing to cooperate with us. Go back to that doctor and be put on a weaning schedule. I mean, have you seen that in your practice? All the time, you'll get you'll get back your uh, the vendor's report recommending how much you set aside, and it'll say something ridiculous, like $250,000 for future prescription, and it might only be one prescription drug. And oftentimes, it's because they're taking the premium brand when we go back and we'll ask the, uh, our adversary, can we, can we negotiate or actually not negotiate? Can we talk to the claimant's doctor and see if there's any potential to change that medication? And like you said, more often than not, they'll say, sure, go ahead. We want to settle this case. We don't care if they're taking the name brand or the generic. Just figure it out and get it set aside. Um, the other thing is you can the doc, once the doctor says the person's no longer be taking it, we have to get an updated uh, prescription history from uh, their pharmacy. So at, at this point, I believe CMS is asking for a six-month history. So yep. if they're printing out a, a pharmacy uh, log showing what their prescriptions are, presumably if it's not going to be on there in the last six months, then it should not become an issue. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point, that even if we speak to our adversary, or let's, let's walk this all the way through, we've reached a Section 32 settlement. We then get a set-aside allocated. 
And usually, again, we recommend you use a vendor for this. The vendors have much more experience than the attorneys. They come back and they've repriced all the medical. And the, the, and now the settlement is for $50,000 and maybe the MSA is for $250,000 of which all of that money is for Flector patches and some kind of pain, narcotic pain medication. Well, there's a couple of things we would say there. First, maybe reprice those high narcotic or high pain management, um, uh, uh, allocations using New York's new 2014 pain management guidelines, which do address some of the long-term use of opiate drugs. Um, and absolutely, can we talk to our adversary and say, listen, it's time to, your guy's got to go to the doctor. You're claiming us to go to the doctor. We've got to get a more realistic number uh, and see if the doctor will either wean him or the doctor will, as you just pointed out, put him onto a non-name brand narcotic uh, that can really significantly impact that pricing. Okay. And Linda asks a question, how can I sign up for the NJ webinar as well? Yes, all right, cool. Uh, thanks for these. They are very helpful. Awesome. I love little notes like that. Uh, Linda, afterwards, we'll shoot you over the invite, or you can go right to our website. On there, there's a section that says webinars, and there's one that just says register, and you click on it, and it registers you for New Jersey. Okay, um, that's all the questions I see right now. Uh, thank you very much for participating. It was fun to answer your questions. Again, any further questions, please feel free to reach out to Declan or myself. Uh, next month, we're going to be talking appeals, and Yusra Hussein will be leading a discussion about appeals. And these are both board panel appeals and appeals to New York's third department appellate division of the Supreme Court. So should be an interesting discussion. Please join us. Okay. Bye, everybody. Take care.